0: Welcome back for our Q&A time. And first question is, when the wicked choose to separate themselves from the presence of God's fire of love and truth and die the second death, then why didn't uh, Satan die when he was in the presence of God's fire of love and truth, when he was allowed to be in the heavenly council in the, in the book of Job? Did God use some kind of shield to protect Satan in his presence? So um, I'm going to read to you a couple of quotations from the, um, I think, Desire of Ages, And uh, the first one, the of Ages, page uh, 759, and then same chapter, 764. It says, God could have destroyed Satan and his sympathizers as easily as one casts a pebble to the earth, but he did not do this. Rebellion was not to be overcome by force. Compelling powers found only under Satan's government. So first thing we learn is, whatever is going to happen, it won't be done by force. It won't be inflicted. It won't be a punishment put upon. Okay? And then we jumped down and said, At the beginning of the great controversy, the angels did not understand this, meaning that the, uh, she describes later the death that would come. Um, Had Satan and his host been left to reap the full result of their sin, they would have perished. But it would not have been apparent to the heavenly beings that this was the inevitable result of sin. A doubt of God's goodness would have remained in their minds as an evil seed to produce its deadly fruit of sin and woe. But not so when the great controversy has ended. Then the plan of redemption, have been, having been completed, the character of God revealed to all the intelligences. The precepts of his law are seen to be perfect and immutable. Then sin is made manifest uh, and Satan's character is revealed. So, anyway... The bottom line is, yes, I think if uh, God did do some type of intervention to prevent Satan from reaping what he will reap later because not to do that would have been, that's an act of grace. Not to do that would have caused misunderstanding in the other intelligent beings and sin would have continued to spread. Um, the question uh, is about the door to Noah's Ark wouldn't the door have represented the following one probation closing where jesus stands up and makes the proclamation he was filthy be filthy still and he was righteous be righteous still Two, the door closing that could represent the mercy seat so the door closing could represent that christ is the only way and rejection of him is the door closing Uh, what about the text that says that the door that god shuts no man can open so which law lens do you look through when you answer questions like this If you look through an imposed law lens, God makes up rules, God sets times, and God has a calendar and agenda, and he does it when he decides he wants to do it. So, Ali, Ali, in free, here I come, ready or not. Probation has just closed. Many view it this way. That's imposed law. Design law, you have to back up and ask the question, what is it that closes the probation? What is it that closes the probation? There you go. There is no point in going further because there's nobody out there who hasn't sealed themselves in one camp or the other. And at the time of the ark, the angel closed the door after everybody who was going to decide made a decision. Okay? So God didn't... uh, And so I think the same thing about the close of the end of time probation. Events unfold on earth that require everyone to make a choice... In the kind of law they will internalize into their heart, and how they treat others, will they practice the survival fittest me- mechanisms and methods, such that they're willing to turn people over to the state, rat people out, uh, exploit people, steal from people, whatever, to protect self, or will they stand for truth, love, and liberty, and protect others at the expense of self? This is ultimately, they did, and of course the righteous are these, they do not love their life so much as a strength from death. So the pro, closing of the probation is the sealing of the hearts and minds that the people decide in who they respond to and, and what they, what they practice. <clears throat> and, um, the door that, that Christ closed, uh, that no one can open, my view is that those are, um, suggesting very similar to what you're describing here. But back in Old Testament times, um, there was a Holy Spirit blessed and used teaching system to help people come into uh, the knowledge and experience of God, the Old Testament sanctuary service, and sacrifices of animals. At the time of Christ's death, uh, that system was done away with. That door is closed. The Holy Spirit no longer inspires that, and you won't find the Holy Spirit um, blessing those activities uh, anymore. Uh, that door to Christ is closed. Now it's it's by faith in Christ alone. So, that's what I understand that means. I have a friend who asked this question. Why do you not end your prayer with, in Jesus' name? Well, thanks for asking the question. Couple, it's an interesting question, actually. It actually probes several different things. First off, if we use it very superficially, in Jesus' name, the word Jesus, J-E-S-U-S, um, Jesus never went by that word. He was never called that. His, uh, that was, that's a Greek word. Uh, they, they they didn't speak Greek. They spoke Aramaic, and so they might have called him, you know, Joshua, which we say Joshua. And they go, okay, well, then why don't you end your prayer in Joshua's name? Uh, and, they, and this this is a righteous question because the Bible, Jesus says in several places, um, when you ask the Father, uh, the Father will give you whatever you ask if you ask in My name. In several places it says that uh, John fifteen sixteen, and other places. But if it's just saying the word Jesus, then if you Jesus said in Matthew 7, that they will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, do we not prophesy in your name? And in your name drive out demons and perform miracles. Then I will send them, tend to them plainly. I never knew you. Away from you, you evildoers. So using the word Jesus or Yahshua as a kind of magic incantation, that as long as we end our prayer with that magic word, we somehow will be heard and God will do. This is superstition. This is not what is being described. Here. So we don't do that. So what does it mean then? Um, well, Revelation 19, uh, 11, uh, it talks about um, Jesus riding on the white horse. His name is Truth. But it says this about him in, in verse 12. He has a name written on him that no one knows but himself. Because in the Bible, name is? Karen. So he's an infinite being, and to know his full name means you have to know him fully. And we will never fully assimilate all the infinite attributes of God. So we can't know his full name, only he and the Father know that. But we can know aspects of his character these revealed to us. And so in the book, Desire of Ages, it says the following, page 668, to pray in the name of Jesus means much. It means that we accept his character, manifest his spirit, and work his works. We don't just end a prayer in Jesus' name. We actually pray with a heart that is motivated with the same principles that he lived out, and we seek to do the same things in this world that he sought to do. So when you have that, then, now get your mind around this, anything you ask the Father in my name, he will do. This is what it says in several places. So if we have the character of Christ and we ask the Father for anything, then he'll do it. Well, how about this? This is Matthew twenty-six thirty-nine. Would you think Jesus himself had the character of Christ? <laughs> so when he prayed, he was praying with the right character. This is in Gethsemane. My Father, if it's possible, may this cup be taken from me yet not as I will, but as you will. Anything you ask in my name, in my character. Was Jesus asking with the right character? And did he get his prayer answered? Yes, he did. Because he said, not my will, but thy will be done. And those who pray with the character of Christ always pray that God, who is omniscient who knows the future, who knows the past, who knows the intricacies of every other variable in your community, family, and situation, knows better than you, and you trust him with the outcome. You ask for what you want, but you trust him, and you always get his will be done. That's what it means to pray in Jesus' name. So that's how I hope we're praying in here. Father, your will be done. So great question. Thank you for that. This one says, explain the resurrection of Jesus and him walking about in a resurrected body. I actually don't understand what you mean by that. So if you'll just resubmit what you're actually asking, maybe I can respond. But I don't really understand what that means other than Jesus was resurrected. It's self-evident um in the words. Okay. I like your discussion on the flood and the rebellious people that God had to destroy put in sleep mode in order to keep open the avenue for Christ to appear in the future. Does it also show God's mercy to the the these people mentioned in 1 Peter 3:19 and 20 and he quotes a portion. It says he Jesus also went and pr- uh, made proclamation to the spirits in prison. Who, uh, who once were disobedient when the patience of God kept waiting in the days of Noah during the construction of the ark unquote. also uh, would uh, would this how would how would this fit into the sleep mode idea you know, basically if they're being preached to uh, during this time okay so it 's always good to go back and read the scripture for yourself and check several versions. This was I think the new revised standard, and it didn 't quite read the uh the sections that I thought were. Uh, right preceding it, which sets the stage for it. And so I'll quote it out of the NIV, starting in verse 18, not verse 19. This is what is, see if it makes a difference, see if you have an insight. For Christ died for the sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. He was put to death in the body, but made alive by the Spirit, through whom he also went and preached to the spirits in prison, who disobeyed long ago when God waited patiently in the days of Noah while the ark was being built. What was the key passage there? Made alive through the spirit through whom also he went and preached. It doesn't say, see this is a common teaching in some aspects of Christianity that during Christ's death, while the, 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 the 72 hours or less that he was in the grave, that he went down into hell where all the suffering wicked are and he preached to them while he, uh, the, the suffering spirits that are being tormented in hell, he preached for those three days in hell and then came back into his body. What do they think is the purpose of that uh to to uh to convict them and show them that they were wrong? you were wrong <laughs> i won you lost <laughs> one for me See, See you. no uh it, it, this is not what it means at all, and so out of the remedy, i will read you out of the remedy, how i paraphrase this uh for that. For that is exactly what Christ did. He suffered terribly and died once in order to cure sinfulness, to provide a remedy for all humanity and restore us to unity with God. In Christ, love vanquished selfishness and righteousness overcame unrighteousness. He allowed the sin sick to kill him and in giving himself freely, he triumphed over the infection of selfishness and fear and was renewed to life by the spirit of love and truth. It was through that same spirit of love and truth that he preached to all humans who were held in the bondage of sin. Yes, it was Christ working through the Spirit who preached to those bound by sin in Noah's day. He was so patient with them, working constantly to reach them as Noah built the ark, yet only eight people responded and had a new life on the other side of the great flood. So that's, that's what I understand. It means Christ was working through the Holy Spirit, preaching through Noah to reach the people bound by sin in Noah's day. It helps me to think that we presented at a different time that Christ's remedy could be applied forward and backward. Not just forward in time, but into history as well. That's right. So the next question is um, from the same person, and it asks, in relation to the above question, is Ephesians 4, 7 through 10 related to the Peter 3, 9, and are they describing the same event? So let's read Ephesians 4, 7 through 10. Each one of us received a special gift in proportion to what christ has given as the scripture says when he went up to the very heights he took many captives with him he gave gifts to people now what does he went up mean it means that he first came down to the lowest depths of the earth so the one who came down is the one who went up uh no they're not talking about the same events uh, this uh, this is describing what Christ said um, that uh, no one knows the Father except the one who came from heaven and I came from heaven and I came down to earth and I'm going back up and then you also apply Philippians chapter 2 that Christ did not think equality with God was something to be grasped but humbled himself into the form of a servant all the way to the grave or to the cross and to death and so Christ came from the highest heights of the source of life and went all the way down to the lowest depths of actual death and then to overcome and destroy death and he goes all the way back up and now governs uh, Uh, Again, the whole universe having conquered the grave and death. So, that's what this is talking about. So, I don't see them talking about the same thing. Uh, Would you say that these are the steps in experiencing a born-again relationship with God? Repentance, belief, baptism in water, receiving the Holy Spirit. Please explain these steps as if someone is hearing your design law sermon for the first time and becomes convicted by the Holy Spirit of their fallen nature. So if we look to the design law view, I would uh, first look towards uh, Romans chapter 2, starting verse 12, which says, Those who have not heard the law, the scriptures, but do by by nature the things contained in the law, are a law to themselves, showing that the law has been written upon their hearts. These are people who have not had the gospel message presented to them, haven't had Jesus in the cross presented to them, haven't had the scriptures presented to them, but somehow they do by nature the things contained in the law. It is written upon their hearts, it says. What is the new covenant experience? I'll write my law on your heart and mind. And so, understanding, the diagnosing the problem first, when Adam fell, his nature changed. Love and trust was replaced with fear and selfishness. We are born in sin, conceived in iniquity. So we are inherently born with fear and selfishness. But God has been working through all of his agencies to bring truth and love to put it back in our hearts. Prior to Romans 2.12, he wrote in Romans 1.20 that God's divine nature is seen in what he has made so that men are without excuse. So people can learn about the truth of love, truth, the principles of liberty. The Holy Spirit is working on the heart. They respond to that. They are transformed such that they die to fear and selfishness. They don't want to practice those methods. They practice the principles of God empowered by the Holy Spirit that they don't even fully understand, but they're responding to the Holy Spirit. These people are born again and considered children of God. To the degree that they have the scripture, they have a great advantage as long as they're not taught through a penal legal theological structure that blinds them to what the scriptures actually teach. Okay, But if they have the scripture, they have a great advantage. And the process is still the same. The process is understanding, I don't like fear and selfishness. I want to be different, responding to God's movements, surrendering the heart to Christ, and experiencing the indwelling spirit that gives you new motives to love God and love others more than self. The rest of the stuff, the formalism of it, Yes, there's place for that. But the water baptism is just symbolic; it's a symbol. The real baptism is what it represents, and that is the immersion of the self into the waters of the Holy Spirit that renews and gives you a new birth. That's the reality you have to experience. You do not actually have to experience water baptism, as the thief on the cross never did. The Old Testament saved people. Enoch, Elijah never did. Okay, uh, but you have to experience the the immersion of the heart and mind into the Holy Spirit to be renewed. In the design law perspective, is there a difference or no difference at all between the work of Christ and the Holy Spirit in the life and heart of the believer who lives to see Jesus come without seeing death versus those who sleep before Jesus comes? So the Godhead is one and the same in character, method, motive, principles, actions, will, purpose, and, uh, and goals. Okay, they're one and the same, but they have three identities and they and they uh voluntarily amongst themselves taken on different roles to achieve these outcomes that they they want to achieve. And uh so for instance, Jesus is the member of the Godhead who became incarnate and lived as a physical human being in human flesh and was crucified. The Holy Spirit did not live that life and the Father did not live that life. They took on different roles even though God was in the Son reconciling the world to himself, okay? Um, they were in they were in all of this together in heart Attitude, motive, principle, method, but Jesus is the individuality who actually chose to do that particular function or job for the Godhead, so they can take different roles while they all practice and advance the same methods and principles and uh, and uh, seek the same outcomes, so working in the hearts and minds, uh, Jesus is the uh, throughout human history, Jesus is the member of the Godhead who interacts with human history. Jesus is the member of the Godhead who makes actual history. He is the one who created all things were made by him. Without him, nothing was made that has been made. So the Genesis account, that's Jesus, the operational action. The Holy Spirit was there over the face of the deep, but Jesus is the member that's carrying it out. Uh, and Jesus is the member who speaks. Uh, to Abraham, and, and and comes and destroys Sodom. Jesus is the member that, if you uh, read about in um, Exodus chapter 3, uh, speaks to Moses in the bush. Jesus is the member who came and visits uh, Samuel's mother. Okay? Yep, and Hannah. Jesus is the member who makes historical facts and data points. Holy Spirit, and so you can conceptualize this, if you've ever seen those Connect the Dot books, if you all these little dots and you connect them all together, you get a picture. Jesus, is, those dots are data points, real factual things that have happened in history. Jesus is the member that's, that's making history, that's interacting, making real reality-based actions. The Holy Spirit is the one that comes along and connects the dots, the spirit of truth, that you can comprehend and see what it all means. He enlightens our mind. And then Jesus is the one who achieved the remedy, who came to earth, lived the human, overcame, uh, destroyed uh, sin and death, okay? The Holy Spirit is the one who takes the remedy and applies it in each of our hearts. And Jesus said the, when the Spirit, when I leave, the Spirit will come. He will not speak on his own. He'll speak only what he hears. So the Spirit is taking all that Christ has achieved and making it known to us. So he's acting as the agency of Christ to achieve these things. But they are taking on different roles. Is there any chance that last week's 3 p.m. afternoon Bible study was, uh, was recorded and, and streamed? If yes, can we have access to it? No, it was not. Uh, can we do that going forward? Uh, um, I'm going to suggest that this is likely to happen once we're in our new facility. Once we're in a new facility and we have our potluck and an afternoon study, it will almost certainly be um, streamed and recorded. Until then, it's, it's probably not going to happen. Um, our facility is, uh, is, um, is, is the progression of the renovations are going well. I don't have an actual move-in date yet, but we're still hoping for June-July time frame, but we'll see. You never know with construction, things can be delayed. So just keep keep us in prayer that we can get over there as, as soon as possible. Uh, this is an Ellen White quote that says, Since the flood, there have been amalgamation of man and beast, as many as may be seen in in the almost endless varieties of species of animals and in certain races of men any idea what these species and races are i think you look around and you see the animals it's very easy to see all the different types of animals and the hybrids and the interspecies stuff on the human races i um i don't have a comment about that you'll have to you'll have to weigh that yourself and come to your conclusion i uh, it was not explained by the author and i think we only get into uh dangerous territory to and suppositions to try and suggest anything there uh, we see Cain and Abel sacrificing to God in the Bible. Uh, later, uh, even though the Jews were the only nation to believe in the one God, they and the predominant culture were sacrificing to God and their gods, was sacrificing uh, pointing to the son who would be sacrificed in the future, and thus all cultures influenced by Satan's copycat system were also sacrificing, while the sacrificing in general. Yes, uh, Satan always seeks to um, counterfeit the work of God. So where God is working, Satan's counterfeits appear, and they're always very close to the real. For instance, if you uh, remember the the uh, Baal worship, who Baal was, Baal was the son of El, the son of the father god El. Baal was the god of weather and creation. Baal um, was the god who fought against the great serpent Leviathan. Baal was the god who um, fought against Moat, the god of death, and in his battle with Moat, Baal dies and rises again to bring life to the earth. Uh, Well, what's wrong with worshiping God, who's the son of the father, who created life, who brings the, the harvest each year, who fights against the serpent, who fights against death, who dies for us and rises again? What's wrong with that? I mean, don't we worship that God? Well, Baal required sacrificial appeasement or payment, which you see with Mount Carmel. They were trying to influence Baal with all of the sacrifices. In order to get blessed, you had to do something to the god. You had to buy him in some way. Cut themselves. And, so, their and cut themselves, yeah. And so Baal was uh, Baal became um, Zeus to the Greeks, the god of thunder, Jupiter to the Romans, Thor to the Norse people, and Jesus Christ to all the Christians who worship a god who require a payment of some kind, the blood of a, of a human sacrifice so that he won't kill them. And that's much of Christianity. And that's why the Bible says in Malachi that uh, before um, the, uh, Christ returns, Elijah must come again and give the message that turns the fa- hearts of the fathers back to the sons and the sons back to the fathers, the message of love. God's character of love must be presented again. And so, yes, uh, I think the sacrifice of the Old Testament became corrupted as pagan appeasement theology because Satan was trying to corrupt the true message of the sacrifice that Christ was coming that to give Himself to solve or heal the sin problem. Uh, since we will be fully sanctified in heaven, will the Holy Spirit still live in us? First um, Corinthians uh, three sixteen. Know you not that you're a temple for the Holy Spirit? Uh, in the uh, same vein, do evil. In the same vein, do evil spirits live in us when we are thinking sinful thoughts? Do we have evil, good thoughts of our own here on earth? So, f- first off, yes, you're an individual. You can have your own individual thoughts that are good or evil. And we can also have our thoughts influenced by good people or evil people, and we can have our thoughts influenced by good angels or evil angels. Look in the book of Daniel, and, and uh, uh, when the when the king was trying to decide to let the, uh, people go, you see a battle with good and evil angels influencing hearts and minds. Yes, but at the end of the day, it's our choice. The Holy Spirit works to get, keep our minds free until we surrender our minds, and we can surrender our minds to evil forces, and as our minds become under the influence of evil forces, they can habitate in our, um, I think, our energy network, because our brains create an energy matrix, and if we harmonize or resonate on the negative frequencies, then we are more in tune with the negative forces and can be more influenced by them. You can see this with human programming, where cult leaders can program people, where they stop thinking for themselves and they start parroting out the thoughts of the cult leaders. Well, satanic forces can do the same thing. The Holy Spirit uh, indwelling us, though. One of the things that happens in the Holy Spirit is we don't become puppets. We become sentient free beings. We get self control last fruit of the spirit he frees us from all these negative influences so that we can carry out our own free will choices um uh, in acting out the principles of god what about in heaven will we be um, still filled with the spirit well in heaven we will be more fully filled with god's presence because we will all radiate light we'll have robes of light again where do you think that light's coming from why do you think adam and eve suddenly lost their robes of light Because they cut themselves off from God. So we will be so fully connected with God that we will have his energy matrix flowing through us, but we will be fully free to think for ourselves and act in our own interests. So, Have you heard of Brother Ron Wyatt? Any comments about his teachings or discoveries, alleged teachings? No, I've never heard of this person, so I have no comments. Uh, I have heard you mention that Michael is the son of God, Jesus. How do you come to that conclusion? Uh, So a couple of places. Uh, First... Michael, uh, so multiple places. In, gen, in Exodus chapter 3, um, it says that uh, if you read Exodus chapter 3, and you read the same account in Acts, I think it's chapter 7 in Acts, uh, Moses is talking to God at the bush. And it says the angel of the Lord spoke to Moses from the bush. And then it, this very next verse says that um, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of your fathers. So here we have the angel of the Lord being called the God of... Um, Abraham, Isaac, and Abraham, uh, Jacob. And you find this multiple times in the Old Testament, the angel of the Lord. Okay, And then, then um, who is it that raises the body of, uh, of Moses? It was Michael. Uh, who is it that holds the keys to the grave and death? Well, that's Jesus. Whose voice is it that we hear at the second coming um, that, that raises the dead? The voice of the archangel. And the dead shall rise first. Who did Jesus say would hear his voice and come out of the grave? They will hear my voice and come out of the grave. So when you put all the text together, you can put together that Jesus is Michael, who is the archangel, and then you can also put together that Jesus is the bright and morning star, which in the Greek New Testament is Phosphorus, and translated into the Latin Vulgate, became Lucifer. So Jesus is the Lucifer, and uh, Lucifer and Jesus uh, share the same name in heaven, because Lucifer means light bearer, and Jesus is the light that lightens all men. So... That's how I get there. Uh, is God a male? If not, why does the Bible always refer to God as he? Is he not male or female, but a being? Angels are just referred to as angels. Would it be disrespectful to call God she? Russell, you want that? No. <laughs> okay, First off, first off, we can say with absolute certainty that God is male if you believe Jesus is God if we believe Jesus is God is Jesus a real physical human being who is male Yes. okay so there you go that's the easy one Jesus now what about the father and the spirit we're not told we're not told but the Bible consistently refers to them primarily, almost exclusively. There's only a couple Bible metaphors that use a female, like um, I, I would. I would. Uh, a hen takes her chicks under his wings. Okay. There's a there's a female reference there. But almost exclusively, the Bible uses uh, the male uh, gender in referring to the Father and the Holy Spirit both. Ellen White does as well. Uh, so I, I would uh, say yes. It's probably not going to be helpful to refer to God as a she. <laughs> And there's a lot of reasons for that. If you think about the actual creation, the male from, and this goes back to the creation account, which also contradicts, um, the, uh, which, which is very, uh, shows that the creation account before genetic science is valid, uh, and, uh, versus the evolutionary account. But a woman can be made from a man. A man cannot be made from a woman. A, wo- a man requires a Y chromosome. Women don't have a Y chromosome. A woman requires only one operational X chromosome. Every cell in her body, even though she has two X's, one of those X's gets turned off and it's not operational. It doesn't work. So a woman could be taken from a man genetically and made because he has an X to give and that's all she needs, one X. But a man cannot be made from a woman. So if you look on that level as well, uh if you if you make got out to be female, she's incomplete and she's not capable of being a creator of all that we understand in the human species, but, but man is. So I think it's probably better um, to say he. She should be on the Supreme Court. <laughs> 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 so all embryos start out phenotypically uh, female until the Y chromosome begins exerting its, flu- its influence to transform into... Um, uh, maleness but it's the influence of the Y chromosome and the genes there let's see Okay, uh, despising and rejecting Jesus today um, that was the blog uh, I think what a week ago yeah, yeah a week ago are you saying that if a thief broke into my house I should not defend myself and my family and a country should not defend themselves from the invader Okay what do you hear in the question I'm going to tell you straight up. The action taken, man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. The action is secondary. The motive is primary. So, what's the motive? Satan's, Satan's kingdom is always based on self. Self-preservation and preserving what's valuable to self. Those who seek to save their life... I'm quoting Jesus now. Those who seek to save their life will lose it, but those who lose their life for my sake will save it it or find it. That is foolishness to the world. The wisdom of God is foolishness to the world. This question is about saving self. Should I not save myself... And what I value at the expense of others. But what happens if the person breaking in, you actually love and are concerned for their eternal salvation? And as they're breaking in, your primary motive is to save them from the sin they're about to commit. I don't want to see you sear your conscience, harden your heart, warp your character and corrupt yourself. I don't want you to pile uh, more sins to your account that you'll have to suffer when the truth burns through. I love you. If you have that love, might you take an action to stop them from what they're doing? Yes. But that—but you might take an action to restrain them. That's restraining power. And that's what righteous people do. But the motive is completely different. And this is contrary to the way the world works. The world wants to justify we're going in because those people are evil. And we're righteous. And we're going to achieve a righteous outcome by using those same methods on them. And that's how the devil traps the righteous over and over in these cycles of violence. On the day you eat, you shall surely die. I believe that complete death is separation from God, therefore eternal life is connection with Him or knowing Him. Adam and Eve died the moment they chose separation, uh, tr- uh trusting self over God, symbolized by eating the fruit. However, grace stepped in and they were allowed, okay, somebody, <laughs> they were allowed what we Adventists call time of probation, a chance to choose life. One reason is that their decision to separate was made under deception. With that said, is our life sustained by God's grace or by natural law he created that allows only a certain amount of time to live? And how do we uh, how do we add the second death into the equation? Well, of course, what's happening right now is God's grace. Everything happening on planet Earth is God's grace. I believe we're in, a, we're in an artificial bubble of reality that exists only because of God's grace. First, death is an artificial death. It is not the death that comes from sin in, in the fullest sense it is an artificial state of being that even the righteous that are not translated suffer we're we're in a suspended state of animation but not yet um uh, uh, not yet uh, ceasing to exist which is the ultimate death for sin so yes this is this isn't uh act of grace the second death um is the death that is the extinguishing of the individuality so called uh, right right now we use the metaphor of the computer you know the metaphor when your computer runs out of power it goes into sleep mode but as long as the data isn't destroyed, it can be resurrected at any time. If you destroy all the data, then it's gone. And so that's the difference between the first death, which your power is shut down and you, and you sleep. But the second death, the individuality is erased. And there is no resurrection in the second death. Okay. Why were our sins placed on Christ? And why did he need to experience what unrepentant sinners will at the end. So first off, I don't believe our quote sins as in misdeeds were placed in Christ. That's a translation issue. The the various words used to translate that, the word can be translated sin or sins. If you take the S off, you'll why was our sin placed on Christ? Ah, that is a different question, isn't it? Our sin was placed on Christ, because he who knew no sin became sin for us so that we might become the righteous of God. Second Corinthians five twenty one. The plan of salvation was the plan that somebody had to eradicate the death-causing principle from this species human and restore the life-causing principle into the species human, and none of us could do it. So Christ partook of the humanity contaminated by the death-causing principle, but his father was the spirit, so he also had within him the life-giving principle, and those two principles wore it out in the human being, human mind, human physiology of Christ, and he willfully chose consistently the life-giving principle, rejecting the death-causing principle, and at the cross it was completely purged from the humanity assumed, and thus he became the second Adam. Once he was made perfect, he became the source of salvation for all who obey him. Uh, Hebrews 5. Eight and nine. And and so that's what happened. Why did he need to experience what unrepentant sinners will at the end? Well, he experienced the same treatment from his father, but his experience was not the same as the wicked at the end. So, and this is an important distinction. Many will say Christ died the second death. No, the scriptures teach that he destroyed death and brought life and immortality to light. They say, so where is it the same? The father treats them both the same. And what does the father do to his son? He let him go go or abandoned him to reap what the Son chose. Did the Son go through the cross against his will or fully in harmony with his will and purpose? Remember Peter tried to stop it and he told him, Put up the sword? Do you not know if I I wanted to, I'd call my father and twelve legions of angels would come? But how would I fulfill my purpose if I did that? I have to do this. He understood his mission. He had to destroy the death-causing principle. He had to go through this process. And then he knew when he did, he would rise again on the third day because the death-causing principle is gone and only the life-causing principle it was in his, his being after that. And he would rise with a, with a perfected humanity. So he understood what he was going to do. The, so he was going to destroy death and the death-causing principle when his father abandoned him, and the father had to abandon him not to punish him, to let him die. but to let him die. He could not die if the father... Lazarus wouldn't have died, Jesus said, if he hadn't stayed away. Okay, The father had to pull back because the father is the source of life. And Jesus had to die to destroy the death-causing principle. And so the father let him go for the purpose of the joint mission to be achieved. There's no punishment going on. It's cooperation. This is teamwork. But the wicked in the end do not die when the father pulls back. They die when they're exposed to the life-giving glory of the father. Just the opposite. And they don't die destroying death. They die destroyed by death. And they don't die when love overcomes selfishness. They die overcome by selfishness. These are not the same experiences. But uh, many people say that. I can understand why uh, women have to suffer all along the ages the consequences of Eve's disobedience through pain, a long desire to follow, uh, and a long. Desires to follow her husband. Okay. So I didn't talk about the husband. We ran out of time. That was simply the natural consequences God was pronounced. He did, he, God did not put that on them. God was diagnosing or pronouncing reality. The new reality, love is no longer operation in your heart. Fear and selfishness is operational in your heart. And what's the natural consequences when people were fearful and selfish? Here's the natural consequence. The strong dominate the weak, and the weak seek to be protected by the strong. That's the natural consequence when you have fear. and So women will seek strong men who will rule over them. And that's what God was saying. Because you've done this, this is how it's going to work now. It's not my design. It's not what I intended. But that's the reality, and that's what happens. Uh, The childbirth thing, you can ask God, and you can make a complaint to him that you don't think it's fair for an object lesson to come down through the generations. (laughs) Any update on the new building? Yes, it's progressing. We hope to be in sometime uh, in uh, the summer, maybe maybe June, July, hoping. Keep us in prayer. Thank you. Um, what is the purpose of the seven last plagues after the close of probation uh, in the design law model? It is God letting go of his restraining hand at the insistence of the hardening of the hearts of people and the Holy Spirit being withdrawn and Satan gaining more and more freedom to act. And what is revealed in that? It's, a, it's simply a revelation of reality. These plagues, these plagues, when God, this is not God inflicting these things, these plagues happen when God no longer restrains Satan and, and, and destructive human beings from destroying things. So, there's a great quote from Ellen White, I don't have it at, at my fingertips, but, where she said she saw the judgments of God would not come out directly from him, but in this way, that uh, those who insist on uh, rejecting all the mercies of God, that he does no longer send his angels to protect them, and Satan has greater control over things and things start to unwind i'm sorry but i can't get to the rest of the questions because we're out of time there's a whole bunch more that came in so uh, maybe dean can leave those and we can try to do those next week gracious father in heaven we thank you so much for your love and for your mercy we thank you for your truth and we pray that you will um continue to guide us and help us be more effective in spreading this message that you may come soon we pray in your holy name amen, amen.